Have you been told that college is the only way to be a great marketer? Do you want to know how to have a successful marketing career without a college degree? On top of that, would you like to know how someone can use that marketing career to eventually move up the corporate ladder and exit to launch a seven-figure business? Well, you're in for a treat. Today, I am interviewing Christopher Nesbitt. Not only does he not have a college degree, but he is my business partner in NoDegree.com and Ace Virtual Agency. I'd just like to note that we're revisiting an older episode. While it's a republished one, the insights and discussions within are timeless and still hold a lot of value. You'll get to see inside the mind of someone I personally have learned so much from. This episode was before we launched a business that had seven figures. So whether you're tuning in for the first time or revisiting this episode with us, we're excited to share these valuable insights once again. Let's jump right in to the No Degree Podcast. No Degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn Somnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The Hello, everyone. I'm uh, Christopher Nesbitt from Nesbitt Marketing. I'm really excited to be on the show. So let's go back to the beginning. You actually went to college, but you didn't finish. Take me through that. I actually went through a whole process all the way through high school and up through college of visual communication, psychology, and entrepreneurship. I was very close to graduating. It was at the time dating a girl. She decided to move out to Maine. I followed her thinking that I was going to end up in a college on the other end to finish my degree. That never happened due to some financing problems that came up. It became very challenging to get additional financing for the school that I had chosen. I just started working and year went by and two years went by and eventually, you know, I was in a career without necessarily a degree. When you got your first job, what did you end up working at? And did the lack of degree ever cause an issue? Like, how did you sort of go about finding a job? I've worked from a very early age. I, as soon as I was allowed to legally work, I was working. And even before then, I was working for my family's business, you know, his family, just doing odd jobs here and there. So I've always had a pretty strong work ethic. But after I left school, I would always show up in a suit. I'd always dress for the job that I wanted. So that's a really good saying that is, does hold true. I'd show up, I'd interview well, I'd been trained well to do that by my parents and my schools that I'd been through. And you have to play their game for sure, but you also have to be intelligent. You have to have a good track record. So I really focused on my experience. I really focused on the skill set that I knew I had from a leadership development angle. And a lot of the time I ended up in management roles. What were some earlier jobs you had? Let's talk about that. And what skills did they get you? I did a few different things. Early on, even before I was old enough to actually work, I was starting businesses. So I started a web development company doing websites for people way back in the 90s. <laughs> so I was probably out six or seven doing that, you know, programming with raw HTML. So I did a couple websites that way. And then I was also as an art teacher, I had learned some very proprietary art techniques that I was teaching people in workshops. And then later on, I ended up working for my dad as a computer technician over the summers. Uh, he used to work with the Traverse City School System. Uh, Netcom Computers would hire me to work technically part-time, but actually full-time. Stripping down computers, testing computer parts, uh, sorting computer parts. And I did that for several summers. Through high school, I worked at a sign shop making banners and building signage. And that was really the beginning of what I consider to be my career now because I was doing a lot of graphics work. I was also attending a career-focused school, which was visual communications technology or visual information technology. And I did that for two years. And then I ended up in college 
for another two years local college and another three years at a university. Same programs, visual communication technology. And then I ended up in management out in Maine after I left school. And I was managing five retail stores out there, key holder, coat holder, with a staff of between five and 10 people per store. Did that for two years. And then I moved back and I worked for another company, two more signed companies, one very large one that I worked for for a long time that was involved in high volume and high paying customer, high ticket customer sign making through digital printing as well as screen printing. And so I was a master uh, press technician for them, lead press technician. And so I did that for five years. And then I started my business, uh, my first business that actually did a lot. <laughs> so I mean, there's, you got to define which businesses do a lot and which ones just kind of peter out. What was that first business? One was a uh, prototyping and product development company. And we used 3D printing and CAD design as like our core to help companies take and individuals take their ideas, for instance, a napkin all the way up through uh, tooling and design for manufacturing, as well as we assisted in a lot of the patent process. So we did a, a pretty broad range of services that supported people all the way from their idea to manufacturing. What were some other jobs that you sort of held after? So you had, you know, the managed the retail stores, you had this business. What were some other things you did? All the way through, I was always pushing side hustles. I mean, I had a graphic design slash marketing company for many years. I also have worked at wineries. I worked for Radio Shack right before they collapsed. That was interesting. When you're in a business mindset and you watch some of the things that they were doing, you could see the writing on the wall before they ever announced anything. So this was right between their first bankruptcy and their second bankruptcy. So I learned some interesting things even by just doing retail on the side for them as kind of a filler. I worked as a sommelier at a self-pour tap house, wine tap house. That was really interesting. I really had a high passion for wine. I don't know why. It's just always stuck. And then I left Traverse City, shut down my business. We had kind of hit a spot where it was like, okay, we need to make a decision. Are we going to leave this smaller town and go to a bigger city and try something different? Or are we going to try and stick it out here and, and maybe just continue living the way we are. So we packed everything up. We sold the business or, you know, shut down the business. Then we came down to Grand Rapids without a job. My wife had a job that I didn't have a job. There were actually a lot of positions. So I mean, to tie it back into the not having the degree, there were a lot of positions that were available that I didn't have access to necessarily because they all required a bachelor's degree or higher. So I applied for them anyways, and I had an excellent resume built up as far as how to structure things and overlap and gaps with the side hustles and things like that. So I never showed any gaps in my employment. I went in really hard and I, I pitched high. So one of my strategies for not having a degree is I always ask for more than they're offering. Always break the cap. That kind of puts you in a position of leverage when you go in and start talking that way because it's like, well, what makes this guy think that he can ask for more money than we're offering? And it's like, I provide the value. And then obviously you prove it when you come in and do your interview. Did you ever lose an opportunity for not having a degree? Like, let's say you got the interview and they say, Hey, you know, do your lack of degree or you just really made sure to sell yourself and really highlight your experiences. I think a little bit early. And so when I worked for the, the large sign maker for five years, I was passed up for some internal positions, but I was still making a significant advancement in the company and much faster than a lot of people were. So I believe the reason that I didn't get put in the position that I was looking for wasn't necessarily due to my degree or my experience. I honestly believe that it was because I was too valuable or where I was at. 
And that happens sometimes too. That's a issue a lot of people face where they actually become so good at their job that they don't want you to leave. Okay, so that's pretty good. Did it ever come up in conversation? Did people ask about your degree or you were just so good at your job that you focus on that it never really came up? One of my strategies in the interviews has always been, I don't bring it up, they don't bring it up. If they ask about college, I will talk about my experience in college. So I do believe that it was valuable to have been in college. And I'll usually say, you know, I did five years in college slash university with these majors, I almost have never been asked if I graduated. And so I'm still able to say that truthfully. I'm not being deceptive. I still got a lot of skills in that time frame, but I don't necessarily have to tell them that I didn't get a degree. And you were good at your job. So at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. Let's go back to sort of the drafting. How'd you learn the drafting, the AutoCAD and all that stuff? Like, How'd you get into 3D printing? It was kind of a weird connection because I took one class in high school. I really enjoyed it. Started out as a, a manual drafting class and quickly evolved into a CAD drafting class. Within the first couple of weeks, the teacher was pretty clear that I was flying through his material really fast. And so we ended up developing a project agreement with the teacher that basically went something like, if we do one big project for the whole semester, will you give us an A if we do it right? And so we went through the whole process of des- designing a submarine, a remote control submarine with a camera. And, and then we had to design the whole thing, build the whole thing, and then compete at state. That was the beginning of it. And then I didn't really touch on it for very long. But what's interesting is that when you get into vector-based graphic design, it's actually very similar to some of the CAD design stuff. I was able to transition pretty quickly, but... The 3D printing stuff was kind of an interesting start. That happened probably 10 years after my high school class. What time was this? What year was this? It was right in the middle of the, the housing bubble recession. So like two, right two, after 2008, 2009. Yeah, somewhere around there. Still, that was still early for 3D printing, right? Because especially in the last, now it's like you have home 3D printers that you can buy. But that was really when it was not as common, right? You didn't really have many. There were some what I call hack bots out there where people were building them in their garage and maybe MakerBot was just kind of getting started but wasn't well known. But the 3D printers that I initially had worked with, I contracted with a lot of the vendors that the big print houses that have farms of these giant industrial 3D printers that do almost perfect resolution without any indication that it's a 3D printer. So I would contract their downtime and then I would go out and fill that for them initially. That's how I got started. And then by the time I was done, almost four or five years later, I had 13 3D printers at one given time. And there was one time where I was servicing and selling a whole bunch of 3D printers to the school system as well. We did a whole lot, but the CAD side of it kind of came as a necessity because as people came to me, they, I realized very quickly they didn't have the CAD and it quickly became the lifeblood of what I was doing with that particular company. And so we would design their product for them. And so we went from a free Tinkercad type program, which was a cloud-based CAD design program to uh, SolidWorks within about two or three years. And we became very, very proficient with the SolidWorks. So how'd you sort of self teach yourself the SolidWorks? Yeah. So again, it kind of comes back to, you know, these platforms are fairly similar, whether it's CAD or it's vector based graphic design. I just got in there and I started tinkering with it. And I knew that I did a project for myself is what basically happened. So I wanted to design a custom cubby for my, my closet. And I had one of those really cheap cube bookcases. What I did was I designed all of the little 
niches inside the uh, the cubbies inside, so it would fit my lighter, fit my sunglasses, or fit my colognes or whatever, and it was all perfect and it was flush, but you could see everything. So that was kind of like my first dive into it, and then I just started diving into customer products, and it, there was some learning curve to it for sure, but I I was able to get through. What opportunities are sort of available in manufacturing? Like what routes are there? Because you seem to know a lot about manufacturing and you know that's where you have a lot of experience in. So there are a lot of opportunities in manufacturing. In fact, manufacturing is probably one of the few places that I think that people can get ahead without a degree. And that's one of the reasons that I focus... Not one of the reasons that I focused on it, but I kind of landed in it. There are things where you can start out on the floor of a place and end up becoming a manager or, you know, a director of the production. There's also opportunities for, you know, running factories or lines and things like that down on the floor. But there's also opportunities to be in sales and technician roles that they'll train you up and through. So I do think that learning STEM. I know, was it science? Technology, engineering, math. Exactly. Well, now it's STEAM. It's science, technology, engineering, art, and math. They do run parallel, but they're looked at a little bit differently from a school system. And the school system kind of decides which one's the priority. STEM is usually the higher priority. But usually you can get involved in STEM programs without having to necessarily go to school. You can go to a tech school, which is a great way to get STEM education. There's apprenticeship programs out there for high school students and, and people in that kind of range at early college age and, and high school where you can apprentice. They'll pay you to work for these companies and they pay you pretty well. And they'll also pay for your schooling as well. So where are you training to be more specific? And then you come out with a certification in something like mechatronics and that pays very well. That's programming robots and designing automation lines. In your experience, what does it take to succeed in manufacturing? Like, Right. There's so many. Who do you see succeed in manufacturing versus, you know, people who sort of get stuck? I think you, you do have to be relatively intelligent, at least depending on where you end up for sure. I think a lot of people who are intelligent are gravitate towards manufacturing, at least on some level, but also it's not just intelligence, right? It's ambition. So you kind of need to be willing to learn new things and try different things and process driven mindset. If you learn how to do something well and you can either document that or replicate that in some form, then that's really useful and valuable for companies and they remember that. Who doesn't seem to do well in manufacturing? Or what type of personalities? You know, you they Yeah, that's with- probably a little bit better of a question. So personality wise, I think that you do have to have a little bit of a thick skin. There's all different types. A lot of these places are corporations. And if they're not corporations, then the, the small mom and pop shops, you know, there's going to be some ribbon going on. And I think that the culture is typically a little bit of an older style culture where it's, you know, you get here at this time and you leave at this time, expect to work overtime, those types of things. If you're able to manage that and you're able to process that mentally and emotionally, you're going to be fine. But if somebody has to have their weekends off because they're not flexible and working overtime, that may not be a good fit for them. That's very good to know. What are some other ways to sort of succeed in manufacturing, right? So you need to understand the culture. Who are the types of people that you really see succeed? Or it really depends on the type of manufacturing. Because there are lots of different types of manufacturing, right? And there are lots of different roles. So you could do marketing and manufacturing. You can do sales and manufacturing. You could do the labor you could also be a production leads and then there's different types. Are they, are they a screen printer that's pounding out 10,000 hits on signage an hour or you know, a day, a shift? 
or are they manufacturing injection moldings? So they all have different skill sets and all different uh, personality requirements. I think a lot of it really boils down to a couple different things. One is dedication. My old boss used to say, you have to eat crow for a little while. That means you got to learn from the old timers that have been there for a long time and they may not be the nicest people and they may not want to teach you. So you just have to put up with that. But a lot of those guys have a ton of valuable information and resources and understanding experience in the process. And uh, they'll be able to teach you a ton of tricks and hacks and um, ways to, to run things. And then on the other side of it too, you know, and again, you have to be willing to, to do above and beyond what you might have been hired to do from a degree standpoint. That is one of the things that's gotten me ahead is like, I'm willing to, to learn every single aspect of a shop. And by usually the one or two year mark, I can run the shop by myself. Any machine, any process in the shop, as long as it's a one person job, I can do all of it. And if it's a two person job, I can take somebody who doesn't know how to do it at all. And I can do that task with that person. What's some advice that you'd give to someone in high school? Because for other industries, you can sort of go on YouTube, learn online, right? So how does someone learn more about the manufacturing industry? Like what's the way to start to get their feet wet? Well, I know that a lot of the schools right now, like I mentioned before, have STEM pipelines that they're building in, at least uh, in the areas that I was in, that we were, we were developing STEM talent pipelines. And we started very early on, you know, we were trying to introduce the 3D printing to kids as young as six and seven. And then, you know, we were trying to develop them as a potential opportunity down the road. But there's also a lot of really interesting tech programs in high school. I think vocational training is not the right word for it anymore. There's different levels of vocational training. We had a program, I believe it was called MTech. And it was through the college, but it was a high school program. It was kind of like um, an advanced program. And all that they focused on was things that were really kind of leaning very strongly towards things like robotics and manufacturing, other tech industries. They taught at a very high level. I think that a lot of the time with, with degrees especially, people don't tend to get them because they need to be stimulated. They crave knowledge, but they just don't aren't happy with the knowledge that they're getting from the, the education system. And so they find a way to educate themselves. And these tech programs are an amazing way to get both best of both worlds. Yeah, you mentioned that you really learned a lot from just the people who are in the programs, who are in the jobs, right? They have so much knowledge. And you said right, they're kind of old school. What's a good way to sort of break their shell to kind of become friends with them? Because I learned so much from other people. So what's the proper way? How do you get them to open up? I've always approached it from a mentor slash apprentice kind of position, right? So whenever I come into a new job, I identify the tasks that I want to learn. In particular, for me, it was always the biggest machine in the room was going to be mine within two to three months. I always hit that timeline. I mean, I did whatever I had to do to get next to those people and start learning from them. And so sometimes it's, it means just watching what they do. And a lot of the time, they're not going to like that. But you got to tell them, hey, look, it's it's what I do. I need to learn this one way or another. And you look like you're the best at it. So you kind of try to soften the blow a little bit by letting them know you're here to learn from them. The other side of it too is kind of get close to the boss, whoever the manager is that's running the floor or you know, even higher up if you're in the offices and things like that. Get close with the boss. And I'm not saying like overdo it where you don't ever give them two seconds of peace, but make sure they know who you are 
that you're having regular conversations with them, that they're aware of the goals that you want to accomplish. That's a big one is you need to make sure that the people that have the ability to influence the direction that you're going to take in that company is aware of the direction that you want to take in that company. And depending on the boss, you usually can get a lot of value out of that. You brought up a great point that you kind of have to let them know what you want to do. So would you say that when you go in that it really depends on what you make of it and you really have flexibility or it's like, hey, if you come in as a laborer, you're kind of stuck in that line? I don't think so at all. I mean, I think you, you have to be realistic. You know, you're not going to necessarily go from running a labor on the floor to CEO in two years. And I wouldn't necessarily say that that's the goal that you should present to your boss. But if you're on labor and making boxes for deliveries that are going out that month and you're doing 10,000 of those or whatever it is, then that you want to be running maybe the CNC or the, the giant screen press in the other room, just as an example in my experience. Make that statement. Say, I'd like to end up there. That's kind of my end goal. I'm willing to go through whatever process you need me to go through now. And a lot of the time, and then tell them, look, I'm happy to be cross-trained and that's a good valuable resource for you because if you ever have a gap open up, I can jump right in. Right. So being trained and available before you're needed is a great way to get yourself into those positions. What are some misconceptions people have about manufacturing? One of the big ones for me, and and I'm guilty of it too, because when I started looking for jobs and went into manufacturing, I thought that manufacturing was a very dirty job. And the almost 15 or so years that I've been involved in manufacturing now, I've seen a big shift where facilities are starting to get a lot brighter, starting to focus a lot more on air quality, employee safety, organization. Going lean makes a big difference for these companies. And a lot of them are taking that very seriously. So they're changing and they're no longer necessarily very dirty jobs. A lot of them are becoming more technologically advanced, clean facilities that are focused on efficiency. And I think I'll share some of the videos you had. Yeah, you showed me the factory. It was like very well lit. It was like super high tech, clean. It, it was cleaner than most corporate offices. It was like they really take care of these stuff. In terms of the environment and all that, so you have like these sales, you have what are some jobs that people don't necessarily think of when they think of manufacturing? Sales is very important. What else? The company in my eyes breaks down to a couple key areas. You've got sales. Typically, you have some form of service or maintenance. And then you also, I mean, and I'm speaking mostly from CNC manufacturers. That's some of my experience, but you end up having sales, you've got marketing, you've got the service angle, you've got the maintenance angle, you've got a lot of the executive roles like accountant, CEO, president, whatever it happens to be. There's also typically project management. That's also a from my experience, I've seen a lot of people without degrees be able to get into that and make good money. And it's very rewarding work. You know, you know what you've done in the world. Those are kind of the big ones. What are some the rewarding aspects of working in manufacturing? Cause I, I know it's very cool to like see something start and you create this amazing thing, right? To see something being 3D printed. What are some highlights? What are some things to look forward to at a manufacturing job? I think for me, it was always that I was able to see and touch a lot of the things in the real world that I had made or helped make or had a part that was made by me or by my, you know, my company. When I was in the sign company industry, we printed all of the printed, built and installed all of the signs for United Airlines. Same thing with Wells Fargo. These are big companies that we had touched in my own personal company. I worked with, you know, Harley Davidson and a few other companies 
at least things that I had worked on ended up in in products that they made. Okay, that's pretty cool. So you mentioned you work for a CNC manufacturer. What is a CNC manufacturer? Well, CNC is computer numerical control. Basically, what that means is that it's a cutting device designed to cut up metal, whether it's carving metal or it's just routing out metal or any material, really. It doesn't have to be metal, but in the manufacturing sector, metal and plastic are the two big ones, really, and carbon fiber is another one. Sometimes wood. Wood's a very big sector. But they're very accurate machines. They're technically a robotic machine, but they've been around for a fair amount of time and they've had a lot of development done on them. If you think of 3D printing as building something up from material, layer by layer, a CNC does it in reverse. It takes away little pieces of material at a time with a a spinning cutting head, basically a, a backwards built drill bit, if you will, and it spins at very high RPMs and it will cut away material out of a block or a, a cylinder. You sort of fell into the marketing aspect of manufacturing. How'd you get into that? And where'd you learn the marketing? How'd you get good at it? The marketing has been the back and forth between signage, sales, marketing, and manufacturing. When I moved down to Grand Rapids, I I don't even remember applying for this job. I think I was scouted for it. But I had kind of all the above. I'd already made signage and they wanted somebody to do trade shows. And I had done marketing for my own company and I had owned a marketing company and a graphic design company and a web design company. So I had done all these things. And then I had the background in manufacturing and I had ran CNCs and I had programmed 3D printers. So I understood a lot of the core functions of the company. And I came in and I, I identified that there were some flaws. And so I went to work on fixing those flaws from the trade show angle because I was originally hired as a technical sales assistant, which was a fancy way of saying, you set up our trade shows and tear them down. <laughs> and so uh, I took a very personal approach to it. And I, I basically gutted that program and started from scratch and built them whole new structures from scratch, very large structures. We started scaling. They're both capacity. We started doing more interesting and targeted branding and and prep work leading up to the trade shows. And then we had new management come in shortly after I had started there about six months. And I went straight to him on the first day that I met him, honestly. And I said to him, we have problems. We need to be working on our marketing and we're not doing it because they had stopped marketing other than trade shows and some pay-per-click stuff back in 2008. And after speaking with a lot of the salespeople, They were having some issues out there that they wanted to address. And so I took it upon myself. I said, I will help you do this. Let's set a budget. We'll set a plan. And we'll go out there and do it uh, without divulging too many of the specifics, which I'm not allowed to do. But we totally revamped the marketing program over the next two years with some very aggressive goals. And uh, we were on track to hitting those goals from a revenue standpoint. So how does marketing in this sector differ from other sectors? Like, What are some key differences? Because it's a totally different industry, right? I don't ever hear of people saying, I do marketing, I want to learn marketing to to do it for a manufacturing company, right? You always think of e-commerce, regular traditional companies. How does marketing differ? It's more multi-pronged, that's for sure. The sales cycle is much longer. So I would say that our strategies follow something very similar to high-ticket Sale items, you know, you could look at things like supercars or houses and things like that 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 are going to take a long time to close the sale. Um, people may need to know about your company for a long time before they ever consider contacting you. That's definitely a few of the ways that my manufacturing operates too. And 
the average value of a CNC, there are certainly lower value CNCs out there, but the ones that we were selling were between around five hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars, all the way up past two thousand or two million dollars. And the sales cycle could be anywhere from six months to two years. When you start looking at that, your discovery cycle has to take place long before any of that takes place as well. And that discovery cycle could be up to a year as well. We had these massive long timelines. And so you have to find a way to keep that audience engaged in a way that is useful and interesting to them and be able to continue to talk to them for that period of time. So again, if your whole process takes three years, then you have to be continually working on different ways to touch your customer. We did everything from pay-per-click to content marketing to trade shows to so many different things, sponsorships. So trade shows seem to be a big part of the... Can you expand more on that? Yeah. So uh, traditionally, and for a very long time in manufacturing, especially in the OEM sector, uh, trade shows were kind of the... I believe it's like original equipment manufacturer, I think. But basically, OEM is like direct from manufacturer, essentially. Equipment typically is OEM. Basically, that was like their main form of marketing and advertising for a long time. And it's incredibly expensive, especially for machinery manufacturers. And uh, a lot of the time, you're taking your machine to the show and you're taking a whole bunch of people with you. And it's very, very expensive. So companies are starting to ask now, like, how do we mitigate those costs? Because we can't have a necessarily direct ROI on some of those leads that are coming in. They are good lead sources. And so that's why they keep doing them. But they're getting some diminishing returns and the cost continues to go up. Companies are getting creative now. They're, they're being forced to go out and try different forms of marketing to try and reduce that cost. So what are some new forms of marketing that the manufacturing sector is adopting? You know, a lot of the digital stuff, email marketing, it's been involved for a while, but I think that people are starting to step up their list grows. I'm thinking that they are already starting to develop better pay-per-click strategies, funnels, a lot of the things that some of the other industries are doing as well. But there's also new technology, things like geofencing that's really effective and efficient. I mean, to the point that it's scary how strategic some moves that you can make in manufacturing are to go out and capture market share. What is geofencing? Geofencing is you basically identify through an ad campaign, like a pay-per-click or a banner ad campaign. You set up a, a fence, a digital fence around or like a geospatial plot in the area that say, for instance, is your competitor or your trade show booth. And anybody who enters into that space is displayed ads going forward. They're given a cookie on their phone and they carry that cookie around with them for like a month or so. And then the search engine or whoever's providing the geofencing will then display banner ads to them based on that location. You sort of ventured off onto your own it's always tough venturing out on your own. What are some issues you faced when you went out on your own? I was kind of prepared for it from a an experience standpoint. But I think that it's always a mental battle or an emotional battle when you first start a company. When you think, I got my website up and running. Why don't I have anybody there? It's this psychological, subconscious thing that's like, well, I have a business now. I'm just going to have customers. And it's not the case. It never is the case. You have to put in the time to go out and find the customers, talk to the customers, start engaging with the customers. So sales is one of the trickier things in a startup because you have no awareness. A lot of companies that have been around for 10 or 15 years have had social proof, word of mouth. They also have had exposure through advertising or just their brand existing and selling. 
Whereas a startup has none of that. And typically it's done on a shoestring budget too. So you have to get very creative on how to market yourself <laughs> with low capital, but it's possible. Have you sort of leveraged your experience in the industry in terms of contacts? Like, are you reaching out to old people that you work with or has that really made it a lot easier or is it all pure new contacts that you're sort of reaching out to? I would say that a majority of the contacts that I had were supportive. So I didn't have a lot of contacts in the the industry necessarily that I could sell to when I came out of that role into this role. But one thing that I did have was supportive roles and I understood how organizations worked. So I knew where the magazine publishers were and I knew where the trade show booth builders were and I knew how to access those types of companies and talk to them and negotiate with them. I was able to go out and set up my network to backfill any gaps that a customer may have very easily and very quickly. And, you know, we are able to coordinate all that and they're all vetted. I've used them all. That was something that I did that was leveraging my network. But beyond that, yeah, it's been a lot of new people. I've been networking like crazy for the last six months, seven months. When you're back in high school, you're a senior in high school, what route would you do today? Because it's a different time, right? 10 years ago, there's so many different opportunities. What would you be more interested in? I would say that if you're interested in owning and operating your own business and or being an entrepreneur, I would start starting businesses as soon as possible. Fail fast, fail often with with young people. I mean, don't give up on things necessarily, but definitely, you know, run a few companies into the ground and try and figure out what made them work or didn't work. And then you'll learn a lot more about business than you may by going to school a lot of the time. I mean, I bear in mind, I took a lot of business courses when I was in school and it was me running and operating that 3D printing business for five years that taught me everything I needed to know about owning and operating a business. Now, great advice. And a lot of people have this misconception that a company is this large thing with a lot of employees. Companies typically start small. It's like you may offer one service. You can do it part time. You can do it while having a job. And then as you learn and as you get more experience. So now let me get a little more specific with that question. If you were trying to enter in the manufacturing, you're entering manufacturing. What route would you sort of take today? Like knowing that you, you know, knowing the skills as a job or as a startup? No, as a job. Or you could say startup too. Yeah. So as a job, I would say that people would be wise to get involved in those mentors slash apprenticeship programs through the school system. Try and figure out how to get that apprenticeship because those are the types of companies that are going to value you long term. They're making an investment in you early. It's paid, all these different things. So that would probably be my number one advice for somebody trying to get involved from an early young age. Then the other thing from a startup angle, I probably wouldn't recommend somebody doing startup and manufacturing until they've spent some time in the space to go work in the industry. Because it's expensive, right? I assume it's not just... Because if your sales cycle is like one to three years, right? it may be three years before you're even making money what you want to do. You want to build up capital in your own, you know, in your savings account, essentially, or startup capital for yourself to survive that initial onslaught of startup. You know, you're going to need some terminology understanding. You're going to need some process understanding. You're going to need to understand how the organizations themselves are organized and how to speak to them. And if you haven't done that part of it, then you need to go back and get some of that experience before you jump in. But broader than that, you know, if you were doing a regular startup where you, you know, you're just doing, say, graphic design and you know that well and you're very good at it, that kind of thing, I would just jump in and start doing it. So what are some mistakes you've made or things you would have probably done differently had you 
Or what are some mistakes that you see a lot of people doing that you're like, hey, you really shouldn't go about it that way, right? In terms of relationships with their coworkers or industries. I would say that a lot of people don't set their own bar high enough. They get comfortable, they get a paycheck, they get comfortable and they just stick with what they know how to do. And they may pick up a little bit along the way, but for the most part, they're just not shooting very high. And if I could see more people setting higher goals for themselves and going after them, then I think that that is incredibly valuable and it will change their trajectory forever. Cool. I mean, let's slowly start to wrap up. I mean, I really want to thank you for your time. Any sort of last words for the audience? Choose early. I'm not saying that you can't change your industry, your sector, or even your career throughout your life or your career path. But um, do try to decide from a big picture where you want to end up. Are you going to be a business owner? Are you going to just be an entrepreneur working to get to that CEO level? Are you just content with being at a certain level that, you know, maybe a management level? And all of those are okay. But if you know early on what that looks like for you, you can set your goals accordingly. How would someone sort of get in contact, you know, sort of follow you? What's the best way to reach out if someone has some questions for you or is interested in your services? It's Nesbit Marketing. Just about every platform, it's at Nesbit Marketing. I'm also on LinkedIn for my personal account. I'm almost every day I'm there. So that's Christopher Nesbit. And then uh website is www.nesbitmarketing.com. I'll throw my phone number out there. It's 231-360-0179. So we'll have that in the show notes and everything. So I just really want to thank you for your time. It's been amazing. And you know, Chris and I have known each other for some time. We're involved in a lot of interesting projects. So you'll see us together doing some things. And you'll see him as a regular guest on the you know LinkedIn live shows that I do. So feel free to reach out to him. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Looking forward to working together with you. Thank you. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and we'll go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree INC. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com.